0: Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real with you for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better? You really can do it, but nobody is going to do it for you. Nobody is going to push you out of bed to work out. Nobody is going to make you eat better. But here's the thing. Nobody has to, because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great.
1: In the week that saw Sally Lindsay and Nigel Havers check into posh hotels, The Greatest Dancer go live for the first time, and Dominic West drag a man through a sewer in the finale of Les Miz, this is Series Linked. I'm Emma Bullimore from the TV Times and this is Mark Jeffries from The Mirror. Hi Jeffers, how's it going?
2: Yeah, good thanks, you?
1: Good, good. Well, this week's episode of the podcast dedicated to everything on the box that's both on and in demand features. Casey Ainsworth joining us to talk about the new series of Grantchester. We'll be discussing sitcoms in the shape of Sky Atlantic's camping and Channel 4's catastrophe, plus Faye Ripley will tell us her box set to watch before you die. You're listening to Series Linked, the podcast for TV fans by TV fans. So Jeffers, let's kick off with some comedy chat, which is always good news. David Tennant is in the new version of Camping, which is the American version of the Julia Davis sitcom. What did you make of this?
2: Well... I'll try. I'll start with some positives. On paper, okay. <laughs> on paper, it does look good, doesn't it? You've got David Tennant, in it, great start. Jennifer Garner, again, good actress, great start again. Juliet Lewis, you know, all really big names. It's a Julia Davis comedy, isn't it? Originally from 2016. She's a great. She's a great writer. But that, that's they're they're the good points. And I'd say <laughs> after that, it, it does sort of go downhill a bit. I mean, it's set around a campsite. It's David Tennant's character, Walt. It's his birthday, so they're all going away camping, a big group of them. But for me, it it falls short. It's quite cheesy. It's quite formulaic. I I didn't laugh out loud at all, if I'm really honest. I maybe sniggered a couple of times, but it just feels a bit uh, predictable and a bit safe, really. I I associate sort of Julia Davis comedy with being quite weird and quite crazy. And I read some reviews of this um, before it was shown on Sky Atlantic last week, and it... It it just didn't really live up to sort of what it what it was talking about, and I just felt it was a bit a, a bit dull. To be honest, what what did you think?
1: Well, I have watched the original, which I enjoyed, and I thought it was very British. You know, when they had the, all those rumours about Gavin and Stacey doing an American version of that, and people were up in arms, yeah, kind of expecting more of an outcry on this, to be honest, because it does feel very British. Vicky Pepperdine plays the uh, protagonist in the English version, and she, you know. The character is unglamorous. She's middle-aged and she's frustrated and bitter about life. And then in the American version, suddenly she, she's Jennifer Garner with her perfect pigtails and, you know, Hollywood starlet. And, yes, yeah, she's very anal about things and she's very also very sort of uptight. But it's a totally different take on that character. It's such... It's such a sort of glossing over. Steve Pemberton is also in the original British version. He's always brilliant in everything yeah, yeah, he does. Great. Rufus Jones is also great in the original. And I just think, you know, we watch loads of American dramas and comedies and don't need, don't need it to be adapted for us. I mean, obviously it can work. The Office and the American Office, I do think the American Office is great. And I think they really played with the idea and ran with it. Fantastic. But for something like this, I just don't see why it needs to be adapted.
2: And also, I think that the characters, you, you sort of hit the nail on the head there. With Jennifer Garner's character, Catherine, it it just wasn't a very believable character. And obviously in comedy, they don't all have to be believable characters. They can be crazy or, you know, they can get laughs from a different way. But I think she was supposed to be a sort of slightly spun up version of a real life person who's, you know, very anal about sort of having back injuries and, and sort of schizophrenic about sort of minor ailments they've got and sort of, dining out on being a minor Instagram celebrity, but it just didn't feel very real. It didn't feel very funny, you know, in the sense that it wasn't exaggerated enough to be very funny. David Tennant, one of our greatest actors without question, but in this, it doesn't feel like he's got a lot to work with. He's sort of playing quite a sort of boring middle-aged guy, quite a safe character, not that many great redeeming features. And so there's not a lot for him to work with in terms of getting laughs either. And it, I, I watched two episodes and to be honest, I don't think I'll be watching a third.
1: Yes, yeah, surprising choice for Tennant, isn't he? He's usually so brilliant and picked so well. Let's move on to another comedy that I know we both love, Catastrophe. How do you feel? I mean, we're, we're quite a long way into series four now, but how do you think it's faring?
2: I think it's brilliant and it's a, it's a great example, actually, of why camping perhaps doesn't work as well and, and why something like Catastrophe does work. You've got these main characters, uh, Rob and Sharon, who, who are played by Rob and Sharon, and they're just brilliant, well-rounded characters, very believable, perhaps slightly exaggerated versions of, of many people in Britain going through a, perhaps a slightly loveless marriage or having problems with marriage. And sort of the intricacies of of those two characters and their relationships is naturally very, very funny. And it couldn't be more of a contrast to, say, Jennifer Garner and David Tennant's relationship in, in Camping for Me. What do you think?
1: Yeah, it does feel very believable, their relationship. I mean, there's a love there, but they deal with some very dark issues they have done across all four series. They are so brilliant. My, I suppose my only criticism of Catastrophe as it's gone on, and, and there aren't many criticisms to make because it is a pretty amazing uh, comedy and it makes me laugh out loud every time, I'm just not really interested in the other characters. I would just rather see Rob and Sharon over and over again and occasionally maybe a little interaction from outside. But they've, I've heard them in interviews say before that they love writing for those other characters. They love writing for Ashley Jensen. and want to give them more and Mark Bonner. I I just don't really care about them. I, Rob and Sharon are so good. I just want to see them on screen all the time. I think it's always best when it's just the two of them.
2: I think you're probably right. I think the, the characters played by Nancy Jensen and Mark Bonadette, they're, they're okay, but they're not as well-rounded. They are not. They don't feel that as they're as well-scripted. They may well try and write them as well, but it, it really doesn't feel like that. It, it very much is the sort of Robin Sharon show. I guess the only other worry would be at some point it, there might be too much repetition in, in which case it probably is the right time to, to bring it to the end at the end of this series which I th- think they've said they're probably going to do but I wouldn't be that surprised if say another five years time they maybe have another go pr- try and perhaps set them slightly older as well that, that might be a good good idea to try as well
1: Yeah there's no need to be hasty is there don't, you don't have to say it's the final series just, just give yourselves a break and come back Definitely Now, Jeffers, I realised something this week. I am extremely cool. And I know that doesn't doesn't surprise (laughs) you because I just exude coolness in every way. But I was watching Only Connect, which is a very cool thing to do. It's a cool start. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Well, I think it's pretty cool. But what is cool is that I think I was about the first person to watch this show. It used to be tucked away on BBC Four. Now it's on BBC Two. Ryland tweets about it. Everyone's watching it. Isn't it great? When I tweet about it, everyone's joining in. I mean, I love this. I love that everyone's joined in. But I feel kind of proud that I was an early adopter because I'm never an early adopter. So my question to you is which show did you beat everyone to?
2: Well, I've got lot, obviously, being a sort of TV writer, I set the trends. Um, <laughs> lot, lot, lots of things like, say, um, Grand Designs, I was all over. What? Early doors, yeah. That's first, the thing you're first proud series. of. You've
1: had a week to think about this. And no, I think. Grand uh, no,
2: no, no, I always give a few. You know, no, this runs, I always do a few examples right, of them. Fine. But my real answer would be Bake Off. First series, I was into that. I think second series, I went and baked a cake for Mary <laughs> and Paul. Did you? Yeah, it's part of my work at The Mirror. I followed one of Mary's recipes. I cooked her a uh, Victoria sponge and she ate three pieces of it. I was very impressed with <laughs> um, my three work. Three whole
1: slices? Three whole slices. No. It's true.
2: So that was like, must have been like That's first, first couple of That's just Are you
1: like, can I take the cake back now? That's insane.
2: I think she just wanted to show that her recipe was really good. I don't, you know, Paul said it was a bit tough or whatever. You know, he was moaning away, but... Yeah, and that was like really early on, before it moved to BBC One and certainly before it was on Channel 4. So I like to think, you know, I, I played a small part in my promotion to, to help get that sort of where it is now.
1: That's a lot of cake for a small woman. I'm oh, sorry, <laughs> I can't get past it. So, and were you telling everyone this is going to be a great show?
2: Yeah, yeah, pretty much from the off. I mean, it, obviously they've changed up a bit since and probably made it a little bit more mainstream. But I think I almost preferred it on BBC Two when it was there was less sort of build up about the contestants. And it, it all feels like such a big thing now. I quite liked when it was kind of tucked away and was a bit, bit of a smaller sort of thing to enjoy quietly
1: so you go no jeffers no bake-off maybe you're listening to series linked coming up faye ripley tells us her box set to watch before you die plus up next casey Ainsworth.
3: when you buy clothes from balkan you're not buying from just another online retailer you're buying from a five-star rated brand Fit and quality is at the heart of everything we do. And you're not buying throwaway fashion either. You're buying meticulously crafted, elegant pieces that you'll love forever. Our collections are defined by foundational pieces infused with timeless essentials and relevant trends. Marie Claire described our collections as everyday designs with a cool fashion edge. And The Telegraph said, If you're after a perfectly pulled together, paired back capsule wardrobe, then Balcon is your go-to. Right now, you can enjoy a little luxury for less in our end of season sale. And with free delivery and returns when you spend £59, there's never been a better time to try us. In fact, the only difficult bit is spelling our name. Balcon b-a-u-k-j-e-n find us at balcon.com. that's b-a-u-k-j-e-n.com
1: so i'm very excited this week to welcome to the studio a lady who won our hearts in albert square as little mo and now we see her all the time on grantchester as kathy keating It's Casey Ainsworth.
4: Thanks for coming, Casey. Thank you, thank you. How are
1: you doing? It's a busy time for you on screen anyway at the moment.
4: Yeah, it is a busy time. Yeah, yeah. Grantchester's doing really good business. So it's great. Everybody seems to like it. Feedback's really good. Um, So, yeah, it's great. That's always, always nice.
1: Really gritty series for you. I mean, yeah. we've we've seen Kathy have her ups and downs over the years, but this whole series has been—it's a whole whole new level, isn't it, really?
4: Yeah, it is really. We kind of like trying to draw some parallels between, you know, what's happening now and what what happened in 1956. And at the time that when we were shooting, the whole Me Too campaign was really big, and we kind of thought, what happened to women in the fifties who um, had suffered a sexual assault at, at work or and. There was no research. We couldn't find any research because, of course, people never reported it. But that's not because it didn't happen. So um, we just thought that it was amazing that now, in you know, 2018, 19, that we, we were now dealing with that. And we were able to, people were able to come forward and talk about what was happening to them at work and in the workplace.
1: And this, I mean, Grantchester, I think, is often underrated as a kind of, oh, it's a 1950s crime drama. But this classic Grantchester, that they would pick something this this hard-hitting to,
4: to Yeah, I think it's always not been a chocolate box exactly, drama. Yeah. The trouble is, is that, you know, in media, they tend to put things in boxes. So they kind of want to go, oh, look, it's set in 1956, it's a period piece. It's about everyday folk. So it's going to be kind of midsummer murders in Cambridge. Um, and that's generally before they've even watched it. They've made up their mind, and so this is what they're going to say about it. And that's always really annoying, because from the beginning... Manchester's always had a really hard underbelly. We've always dealt with things um, that weren't easy matters to deal with. It hasn't just been about, you know, oh, there's somebody who's died, let's sort that out. And in between whiles, we'll go to the cricket pavilion and have some tea.
2: And we haven't seen her sort of confront or sort of speak to Geordie about it yet. What can you sort of tease? What's going to happen there? What's next?
4: Well, that's the big problem, isn't it? And, that, and we wanted to really reflect how women felt and how women still do feel, um, or anyone at work who's, been, who's suffered an assault at work. Um, and there's a moment of questioning. Was it me? Was it something I did? Should I have been different? Should I have stayed at home? Should I not have put myself in that position? And so there's a lot of that questioning that happens with Cathy first before she even goes anywhere near even talking to Geordie.
1: Because it's putting a strain on their marriage and he doesn't really understand why he might think that there's something else going on, which is
4: he's totally going the wrong direction, isn't he, in his thinking? Totally, because at the end of last series, he'd had an affair, she discovered the affair, and this whole thing of her getting out and going to work is a part of her reclaiming herself. She doesn't really know she's doing that, but it is, that's what she's doing. So, therefore... She's not going to want to have a a conversation with him about that because he was so reticent about her getting a job in the first place. He was so down on it anyway that she would feel like it was an "I told you so" moment. It's a bizarre thing, but with you know cases of sexual assault and rape, the defence always seek to tear down the person who the victim of the crime, and there's no other time when you do that so if somebody gets something stolen from them the defense doesn't go in and say you know well they were flaunting it about and you know they should have they, you know they deserve to have their house ransacked they they don't say that but they do do that with victims of sexual assault they try and blame them and say that there was something they did and so that's why we have this culture of people sitting there going I can't I can't do anything because I went I went to the bar because I had a drink because I was wearing this because I was wearing that and it's utterly ridiculous. And it's only now that we are getting to that phase where we're saying, no, it is nothing to do with you. It is that person's fault. It is them who, who, who are responsible for their crime and no other person. So we're only just getting to that now. And that's crazy. That's, we said, we're talking about 72 years ago. And that's crazy. We're just getting to it now.
1: And, I mean, you obviously, in EastEnders, you played out a big abuse storyline. It was different. But I think that similar sorts of things to what you're saying about how victims are blamed for things. And that had such a massive response, that storyline. Yeah. As an actress, with this storyline and with that one, do you enjoy doing things like that, that you know will, will really resonate with people at home and will have that kind of reaction?
4: Well, I enjoy being an actress. I mean, mm. the, whole, the whole domestic abuse um, storyline... I didn't even realise that that would get all the um, attention that it got. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was only really afterwards. I think Alex and I went to, a, went to Number 11 Downing Street with uh, Erin Pizzi from uh, Refuge. And she. The, it was then that I thought, oh, they're using this whole story in order to get part of the law changed. And I think that's a wonderful thing, that the power of a soap, me doing my job and working hard at it, that that can get uh, that can help someone in their job to get a law change to protect people so it's it 's a wonderful sideline it 's not what you become an actor for. you might become an actor to do some political plays and stuff like that but but generally you know you don't that 's not what you do so suddenly you are you 've got a responsibility suddenly you 've got a responsibility to know what you 're talking about um, to have researched it properly, to do it well, to do it justice, and all of those things, and they come separate. To, to your actual job. The power of giving people voices um, is very strong and and people can um, help themselves once they feel like they are not alone.
2: Storylines like this, are they harder to kind of switch off at, at the end of the day? When, when you, Are they harder to say a normal day's work? Because it's obviously quite an intense... A difficult thing to talk about and to act, I guess.
4: I think, yeah, I think they are quite difficult. When I was on EastEnders, it was, it's, they're long days, they're 12 hour days and they're six days a week. So I was being Mo longer than I was being myself. Um, and I think they do have a physical impact. I would be going home in the car, I would still be sobbing and still be very upset. To kind of opened up whatever door there was in there mm-hmm. and in used all of that, and I would still be crying and i 'd be in the next morning i 'd be up at five to be in the next morning, and they 'd have to turn me upside down on the makeup chair and put like cold spoons on my eyes to try and get my eyes to go back to normal um, so that I could shoot a scene in the caf where I gave Dot a bacon sandwich <laughs> or whatever. Um, so it was relentless and it was hard, but you were always aware that this you were playing someone else. You know, people are there as people all up and down the country who are actively living that life. So, you know, for all you can say, no, oh, it's tiring... Actually, and yeah, and this does have an impact. Actually, you're not living that. You go home to your fella and your dogs and your kids and your house and you're not living that and loads of other people are.
1: And going back to Grantchester, have you had any reaction yet from people
4: having seen those distressing scenes with Kathy yeah yeah you do what you what you get is the same thing people saying you know I had a boss like that or saying it's really awful that she doesn't have anywhere to go I hope that someone will be able to help her and they don't really know how how the story gets resolved or if it does get a resolution so um, I, I would imagine that after that you'll probably get a lot more comments about it
1: and you were talking about how it was inspired by the Me Too movement. How did you feel as an actress, someone in this industry, when that all started coming out and the Time's Up campaign started moving? What was your
4: reaction to that? My reaction was TikTok clock. There's plenty of them out there. I was, I was waiting for people. I was waiting for people to be revealed. I really mm. was. I was sitting there thinking to myself, oh, I wonder if, he, if he's next. Seriously. You know, I've been working since I was eight years old. Mm. Unbelievable things happen in this industry and they're not good. So the fact that women stood up and were brave enough to take on possibly the, well, the most influential uh, producer, allegedly, in film at that time um, and to take on other people and they are still doing it um, and their people are still standing up saying, you know, this person did this to me it's so important that we understand that that was happening it was rife and, it, and, and I don't even know what the pop industry is like but I can imagine I can only imagine it's ridiculous it's ridiculous and mad and I'm so glad people are standing up and saying this is what happened to me and uh, are not being afraid of detractors Have you noticed any differences? You know, Francis McDormand talked about
1: inclusion riders and things changing on set. Has anything changed in a practical way? Huge amounts, yeah.
4: So um, when we were doing this storyline... Um, I had something that I've never had before, which was um, all of the production company at Qdos, um, the three the three main executive producers said to me, "This is what we we talked about doing this story," um, and I suggested this story to to Daisy Cullum. And once once the who's the writer, once they decided to do it, they sat down with me and with Christian who who plays Mr. Hobbs, um, and said, "Right, this is how we're going to do it," you know. We don't, we, we you know. We don't want you to be upset. We want you to, we want you to do the piece. But at any time you feel uncomfortable, and both of us, so both of us had that conversation. I've never had that conversation with any production company ever.
1: And also, what's great was seeing Kathy in the workplace, seeing her have a job, and yes. seeing how she feels empowered by that. Yes.
4: We were talking earlier about how women did have jobs at that time, and yet you never see it on You'd, TV. Exactly. Again, we're sold this myth. Right, that women didn't work. That um, I mean, I don't know about you guys. When you think about the nineteen fifties, if you think about women in the nineteen fifties, is your first thought like Doris Day and big skirts, and you know, and you know those old news items where they where they talked about you know, you know, uh, and Mummy does the shepherd's pie, and you know, Daddy does, Mm. Daddy mows the lawn, Um, and they have so. A modern day version of fake news. This is what I think. So, like, mm. a, they were a modern day version of fake news. We think we we think we've only just got it now. We think Instagram didn't appear. Well, it appeared in those because they they always showed this kind of you know really lovely v- version of the 1950s. And actually, to be honest, there was a huge amount of women in the workplace. And sometimes, even if they weren't at work, they were doing homework. So you had lots of women who worked from home. You know, uh, you know stuffing cushions and plucking chickens and all sorts of things so but we never see it because there is this been this, this you know oh, it's a horrible misogynistic idea that women didn't that women had this role and that's all they did and it just it just isn't true so and we went round the table and I said did your grandmother work did your grandmother work because my grandmother worked until she was 75 um, and she always worked she never she did not stop working she worked from uh, I think my my dad was like 18 months when she went back to work and she she carried on working all the, all the way through, right, until she was 75. So, you know, the idea that, that she would have stayed at home would, would have been hilarious to her. And actually, you know, that that was the vision that we thought of now. She would have, she would have thought, well, that's ridiculous because I worked and Queenie worked next door and, you know, all of that.
2: And you've got a new cast member this series as well, Tom Britton. I just wanted to ask what, what it was like, whether that's changed the dynamic of the show at all.
4: I think it always brings in a fresh energy, really does. Well, I suppose it really does if you have a great person who comes in. Mm. You know, Tom came in and, you know, he knows that there's a pair of shoes to fill, but he actually didn't fill them. He said, this is my shoes. So he was he came in with a fresh energy and a fresh idea and gave a fresh kind of launch to that invigorate the part that part of the vicarage.
1: And what about when you're, you know, you've done a scene and it might have been hard, is there much downtime? Do you get to hang out with Robson and have a laugh or is it quite a sort of serious working atmosphere on Um
4: It's a mixture of all of those things, but actually when you're in a scene with Robson, it's generally just really good fun. The reason why he's um, so popular is because he's so good at what he does and he's very enabling, he's really encouraging to everyone and kind of... Um, he takes it on board I mean we're really lucky we've got a great production company in kudos but he also takes it on board to bring everyone together so he would always they would always arrange you know, barbecues and cricket matches and fireworks displays and uh, you know um, ice cream vans coming up the road for when the kids get off school that kind of stuff um, just because you know we're filming in this beautiful village and it's You know, this this is people's homes and they're being put out by the fact that they can't drive up the road and there's cameras and there's paps everywhere. Um, But they they really embrace it and embrace us. And so we like to do the same back. But Robson is integral in that. He's the he's the person who begins all of that um, and says, right, this is what we're going to do this year. So, um, you know, he is, is just a wonderful person to work with.
2: How far ahead can you two look? Because this storyline at the moment feels like it's got a, a lot left to run. It's going to have probably impact on future series. Are you all locked in for another series already?
4: I don't know about the others. I'm always really sceptical of talking about anything, you know, until I'm eating the bacon sandwich. Yeah, you the don't set. want to jinx it. You just don't. You just don't, you know. Um, but we are a really lovely Grandchester family. So it would be, it would be lovely to do another one. And what do you watch on telly when you're not filming or you're working really hard? Well, because I'm quite busy, um, it's always box sets and it's always catch up things. Um, so um, I've just finished Escape from Danamora, which was the Ben Stiller. Um, it was a true story. And Ben Stiller directed it. and It was Patricia Arquette. That was really great. I mean, kind of grim and hard watch, but really, really great. Um, I'm obviously the same as everybody else, waiting for the next series of Game of Thrones. <laughs> yes. I was a really late um, viewer to Game of Thrones, watched it all at once. Obviously, it's ridiculous. There's far too many young women with their naked, naked and far too few <laughs> on the other side. Um, just utterly preposterous most of the time there's no old ladies in it at all apart from well I say this, this is an awful thing to say Mia Saturo and Dinah Rigg um, but other than that there's nobody of, of middle age at all they're either you know 25 um, or old crones so it's you know I mean it's all of those things I want to throw strawberries at but I loved it I know it was great <laughs> and I love the central characters the two girls I obviously loved them and I thought they were absolutely fabulous Do you watch shows <laughs> thinking oh I'd like to have a role in that or do you watch it not as an actress Oh up. no 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 yeah no i do I, I it's it's twofold it's really funny it's twofold if i'm a bit meh about it i will pick it to pieces <laughs> um which is really bad um but and i am terrible on continuity i spend all of my time stopping it and going to, going to my partner look look call it out call it in call it out call it in it's not even my job. It's not but, my
2: job. I bet he loves that. He's in the middle of watching this drama. And he's he cool. hates it.
4: Yeah, of course. He's just like, so? I don't care. I wasn't looking at the collar. I was looking at the face. So I was looking at what they were saying and I'm like, oh, okay, fine, okay.
1: And you're about to go into Sweeney Todd in the theatre. Yes. What other TV projects are on the
4: way or what kind of things would you like to be doing? So I've got... Um, I've got a a comedy, Sky Arts comedy called Huntington Gardens, which comes out. I think it's being shown at the Barbican on the 23rd of February. They're doing that and then it will be on Sky Arts after that. Um, I've got a movie that I shot just before Christmas, um, which is called Lynn and Lucy at the moment. And Ken Loach produced it um so that's that i haven't seen it i don't know what that's like i also did a british movie called we the kings which um it won at rain dance and so what happens then once it's won at a festival then you might get greater distribution elsewhere um so hopefully that will go somewhere as well um and then i've got a couple of shorts um that are coming out and, and then i'm doing sweeney Todd.
1: sounds like you have filled every single minute of your day so the persistent rumors about returning to EastEnders- Rubbish, I'm guessing.
4: Yeah, it's really flattering that people love the characters. It's really flattering that you say, because, you know, you look really young. I think to myself, oh, you're not, that. you wouldn't have never seen me on it because I feel like I left like I remember years it well. ago. <laughs> um, so... It's really flattery and people say they remember it and it had such an impact on them. It's brilliant. It's really, 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 really good. And I absolutely adore... I love soaps. I love the genre. My Slater family literally cut my leg off and there would be Slaters running through it. But at the moment, I'm just so busy doing lots of diverse things and it's been really wonderful. Um, I never never say never. I would never rule it out. Um, But just at the moment, I'm just too busy. And it's really funny because when you say that... Journalists put it in inverted commas, like (laughs) you're not really. And you go, no, I really am. (laughs) Because they don't want it to be true. It's a funny thing about EastEnders. They don't Mm. want you to leave there. You can get away with it if you come from Corrie. So, you know, Sarah Lancashire, um, Suran Jones, Anna Friel, they never put ex-Corrie Sarah Lancashire. But people like myself and Tracy Ann Oberman who've left EastEnders and created careers at, you know, extensive careers outside we're always with that moniker it doesn't bother me well, that much
2: why do, you th- why do you think that is you mean there's more of an EastEnders tag than a Corrie tag
4: yeah I think so I think so they kind of let you off Julie Hesbenhull I mm. saw her uh, something written about her Broadchurch actress and I was like yay for Julie that's brilliant because she is a Broadchurch actress but if that was me and I'd been in broad church, they put Ex EastEnders so, and it happens all the time and it, and it can tip. So I don't know what it is. I don't know if there's a snobbery. You always get the feeling that there's a, there's a bit. I, I remember one BBC executive saying to me, you've got ideas above your station. And no. I remember thinking to myself, what station is that? What what do you mean? Um, and so I don't know whether it's that. I don't know whether because we're we're playing people who are um, you know from lower incomes. If if there's some idea that we're not allowed to move up the career ladder, I don't know. I don't know what it is. They kind of won't let you forget <laughs> it if you can, if you're on East Enders. They literally won't. And so and so I think for some people it's really hard to you have to you you have to really shake it off. And one of the ways that I I felt was the only way you could really do it, was by never doing anything or not doing anything to do with the celebrity world, which is a fine, dandy enough world. It's a good world and it's a good place for people to earn money, but it means that you kind of downgrade your brand, if you know what I mean. So I I wanted to stay... Just working, being an actress, just working and doing good stuff in different places and being quite diverse with my characters. So that then there was less of a pigeonhole that they could put me in.
1: And by that, do you mean turning down things like Strictly or whatever?
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. turning down all of those. If you do those, you're dead in the acting world. Mm. And I know it sounds mad because people in the street would think, oh, you know, if you're really popular, they'd want to put you in the programme. They absolutely don't. They don't Mm. want to put you in the programme because you're then from a completely different world. And like I say, that world's lovely and great and wonderful and, you know, knock yourselves out. But it means that you won't get any other acting work.
2: God, that's, that's
4: actually... I hadn't even really
1: thought about it like that before because I just think, oh, Strictly, what a lovely programme. Why would anyone say no?
2: <laughs> what you mean by that is after you did Strictly, the type of roles you would get offered in terms of acting would be different to maybe the ones you'd, you'd get, say, no. You wouldn't get any. Right.
4: You'd get offered, you know, the next celebrity show. You know, and you'd end up doing, you know, my celebrity dog's watsits are bigger than your celebrity dog's watsits. That's how, you know, do you know what I mean? It's a sliding scale because then you're not particularly seen as an actor.
1: And just to finish off, to anyone who's listened to this and thought, oh, I haven't actually watched Grantchester before, but this sounds good. How would you kind of sum up the appeal of Granchester? Because we're on, what, series four now? Still going strong. People yeah. love
4: it. I think the thing about Granchester is is that it is a, you know, you get a story. So if you want something that's, you've got a beginning, middle and end, you have a resolution. But then you have all these great characters that are running across the series. So you get two things. You get a, a, a story that you possibly wouldn't have thought of, like you know, uh, the computer age in the nineteen in 1956 was beginning then and we kind of think it was 1980s, Amstrad, Apple, AI, you know, in the last 20 years. Not. Goes right the way back there. I think the first microchip was invented in 1958, wow. which is the beginnings of all of our computers, if that hadn't been invented then. We wouldn't be doing having computers now, um, so that was when it began. So I think you get and you get quite a um, a story that has a bit of an edge to it. Not your regular, not your regular crime drama.
2: That would be the biggest thing I'd say. Maybe if you hadn't watched it, you might have some ideas that it's a very gentle program. Maybe a little bit beige, but you do actually talk about big issues. You know, and it's it's beautifully shot and it is a it's a great piece of drama, really. Isn't yeah,
4: it? yeah, and I think that's the thing. Like I say, it was put in a box it was put in a box that it's this and it's not and it it, and it isn't that and the great thing is is that the viewers have because they've stayed with it and it stayed strong they know that that's why you know our, our viewing figures are pretty good and also they're consistent throughout the series
1: Brilliant. well I love it I've watched it since the beginning early adopters we were talking about earlier <laughs> um, and thank you so much for coming in to join thank us you. today thank Thanks. you Casey it's lovely to talk to you and if you want to watch Grantchester it's on ITV Fridays at 9 o'clock and obviously on the ITV Hub as well Right, so we're going to talk a little bit about documentaries now because everyone seems to be talking about this Ted Bundy documentary on Netflix, Conversations with a Killer. What do you think about this, Jeffers?
2: So this is all about Ted Bundy and it's about the 30 murders that he committed during the 70s, 30 women, basically, that he murdered. Initially, he didn't confess to them and then a lucky journalist basically got his confession but only sadly on cassette when he went in and visited him in prison over a number of hours. So you've basically got this long confession a lot of audio, some really chilling sort of comments, and it sort of played out with facts from around the events, other relevant people, police and other journalists talking about it, and it plays out over four episodes. So it's very detailed, but I don't, I don't know what you thought about it. Am I, maybe four episodes was a bit too much?
1: I think four episodes is a lot. That first episode is a lot of hearing Ted Bundy's voice, and I have real issues with this documentary, actually. I think people are really intrigued by it because it is an intriguing story, but I think as a documentary... It, it, I mean, to say it glamorizes him goes too far, but it constantly talks about how good looking he is, and I know that's the thing about Ted Bundy that he was educated, supposedly charming, and therefore people think, oh, it's not, it's not the image I have of a serial killer. But I think they play on that way too much. It's mentioned so many times. Oh, he was so winning, and oh, he was so attractive. And the first bit, he's he's playing games with this journalist. He wants to, he wants to set the agenda. He doesn't want to confess. He wants to basically have a book written about him for after he dies. And so we're playing his game by having a whole hour of just listening to him ramble and not, you know, what about these women that died? Where's, where's their story?
2: Well, there is there's a fair point. It, it could be seen as sort of creating a legacy for him, I guess. he, I, I suppose he would love the idea that there is now this Netflix series, of, you know, dedicated to almost his work, if you like. But on the other hand, I think it sits somewhere in the middle for me in terms of the quality of the documentary. You've got something like The Keepers, which was another documentary on Netflix about a uh, murdered nun that was absolutely fantastic, really good. And then you've got something like Killer Women with Piers Morgan. Sometimes on that, the... Killer uh, doesn't confess to the murders, and you've basically got an hour of an interview where it goes nowhere, and there's not really any confession. Some of those, are, you know, are, are not are not as good. Whereas at least with this, you have got somebody, it's a, you know, a genuine killer, and you are he is confessing. So on that front, it does really work.
1: Yeah, I just think you just need to be really careful around this kind of subject matter. You know, we talked about Dominic West last week, and that drama he was in, appropriate adult about Fred West, I thought was absolutely brilliant. It's not that I think that you can't deal with this kind of topic in any way that is appropriate. But I just feel this for me. It, I I felt like I was sitting there, and and calling it conversations with a killer. You know, I think there's there's a little bit of sort of blurring the lines between entertainment and documentary. You know, we're so used to watching things like Luther about killers, and you know, it's all part of a game and it's thrilling and it's exciting. You know, this is not exciting. This was terrifying, and I, I'm I just find it it's a bit uncomfortable for me. But let's move on to another documentary, which I am much more complimentary about, which is this new David Bowie documentary. Um, What's the actual title of it, Jeffers? It's
2: called David Bowie Finding Fame, and it's on this Saturday night on BBC Two. It's a really um, in-depth look at his sort of formative years, really, and and you were quite impressed with it, I think.
1: Yeah, I just thought it was stunningly put together. It's so cinematic from the very beginning. And I have this thing about David Bowie, because I love his music, but I, I feel like proper Bowie fans almost won't let you in, unless you know the album track on album 64 or whatever it's like you're not part of the gang but I found this a really accessible documentary um really interesting stuff that I didn't know about footage that hadn't been seen before of him um basically it's about him discovering that Ziggy Stardust alter ego and finding a way to break through it shows him as being very ambitious and having a really great sense of humor which I think sometimes when in music documentaries that can be missed but he he comes across so well as this ambitious young man with this talent but just trying to get heard
2: I'd say, yeah, I totally agree. It's, the filmmaker is Francis Watley. It's the third Bowie film he's actually made for the BBC and, um, and the last one of the trilogy. But I think it, a lot of people are already saying that they think it could be his best work. He's got some interviews in there for like the hardcore Bowie fans. He's got an interview with a woman called Hermione Farthingale. It's the first time she's ever really spoken on camera. She was Bowie's first love. He's also got Bowie's older cousin called Christina She's never spoken before on television and she gives a real insight into his family life, how he was always looking to sort of be adored by his mum and never really got her approval. So that, so for the real sort of diehard Bowie fans, there are these interviews that, you know, they've, they've never heard before. There's um, some TV appearances which were feared lost from the 70s that are gonna be on there. But if, if like, perhaps I think me and you, you're at a more bass level and you don't know that much about him anyway, it's just a great introduction to him and you, you can really see that drive that made him wanna be a, a star. And he has a lot of failures to begin with, a lot of flop singles, a flop album, but he keeps going and keeps going. And then as you say, with Ziggy, it kind of all takes off and, and that's where, it, where his career sort of becomes, becomes huge.
1: It's time once again to add to the list of box sets to watch before you die. Each week, one of our favourite faces from the telly tells us a must-see series. Last week, Russell Howard got a bit cheeky. He gave us two recommendations. He recommended both Mad Men and The Wire. This week, it's the turn of Faye Ripley. She's been amazing in the current series of Cold Feet. Let's find out what her box set to watch before you die is.
5: Find somewhere online... A show called Summer Heights High. Summer Heights High is a comedy. There's a guy called Chris Lilly, an Australian guy, and he plays all the main characters himself, which are a girl called Germaine, a teacher called Mr. G, and Jonah, a, a schoolboy. And it sounds bonkers, but it is a work. Of genius. I teach Jonah Takalua. Puck you, miss. Beg your pardon? I said, Paki. you. With He's disruptive and he can so be very rude. and kind. Oh, miss, you farted. Oh. Miss just farted. With those box sets for life, I feel that they only really qualify for this category if you can watch them over and over again. So if it's a who-done it, well, you know, watched that once, because then you know you've done it.
3: Teachers at my school are always going, Jemais, oh my God, you're the most likely to succeed and stuff, because I'm like the smartest non-Asian in year 11.
5: My kids watch it, and when we are sort of in need of cheering up, we will pop on an episode of that and laugh ourselves, kind of silly, really.
3: My teaching methods are fairly unique. Someone join in. I'm there to inspire them. Who's gonna to wanna to pay to see you on stage? I'm there to teach them to dare to dream. Get out. At the end of the
5: day, if I've gotta watch something over and over again and it's my box set on a desert island, I'm watching the same thing. I, every single detail of that show makes me laugh. It's so
4: brilliant. You're gonna look at Ben and say, sorry, Ben.
2: Want sorry, Ben.
1: Well, well, Summer Heights High. I have to say, I actually had never heard of that, so that's a proper recommendation for me. Have you seen it, Jeffers?
2: Yeah, I have. Yeah, it's um, it's from back in sort of 2007, start of 2008. It, it first launched in Australia, and then it came over to BBC Three. And um, Chris Lilly was a sort of big name at the time, and around sort of the years around that time uh, had a couple of big series, but Summer Heights High is probably the best of of those and yeah he sort of played every character in it and it was sort of like a spoof school uh, that it was held in and sort of lots of jokes sort of based around pupils and, and the teachers does it sound like the sort of thing that you'd watch
1: i don't know i mean she she says it's really really funny is it that fun? What What's the kind of sense of humour of the show?
2: It's character based comedy. It's not really one where uh, each episode follows another. It, it's sort of teacher and, and pupil sort of blown up in proportions in terms of their mannerisms, in terms of things they do wrong, in terms of school bullying or, you know, your school PE teacher or whatever, and it's it's um, jokes at, at, the, at their expense, really. A lot of the time, uh, Chris Lilly's stuff is still on uh, BBC iPlayer. I think at the moment it's not on there, but I'm sure if you look around a bit on, say, YouTube, I'm pretty sure you'll be able to find a fair few of these episodes.
1: Great, I'm going to check it out. Sounds good. So we'll be hearing from another famous face from the telly to tell us their box set to watch Before You Die next week. We're running out of time this week, but as ever, we have our final feature. We need to scan across our EPGs and hazard a guess at what we'll be talking about, not just next week, but also next month and next year. Jeffers, this is your glory moment. I rely on you. Tell me, what should we be keeping an eye on next week?
2: Well, next week, there's two options for you. Uh, MasterChef is back, so Greg Wallace, John road I think that'll be good. But over on Channel 4, there's something new. It's called Famous and Fighting Crime. It starts on February the 11th and it's a group of famous faces and they're joining basically the British police force going out on the road and seeing what it's like on the front line. You've got Katie Piper involved, uh, Penny Lancaster, Jamie Lang and uh, Marcus Brigstock amongst the people going out there and I think it's going to be really good.
1: Imagine being arrested by Marcus Brigstock. Nice. What about next month?
2: Next month, uh, I think we're both excited about this it is this time with Alan Partridge. Yes, come on. A new six-part series With Alan, uh, back on the BBC, and it's very much a sort of uh, spoof on The One Show, I would say. I don't know what what you thought about it, but I thought when we saw the screening, I thought it was great.
1: Yeah, the screening was great. It was a room full of proper laughter, which is not always the case in a comedy screen, but people absolutely loved it. Can't wait till that's actually properly out. Next year?
2: Next year, I'm going to pick out a drama that Netflix have just commissioned. It's called The Stranger. It's based on a novel by Harlan Coburn, and it's a bit of a twisty psychological thriller. Uh, It's going to star Richard Armitage and I think it's going to be really good.
1: And of course, that's the same writer that gave us Safe on Netflix, which was absolutely compelling. So that's going to be great. That's all we've got time for this week on the Series Linked Podcast. Thank you to everyone who's left a five-star rating and a nice review. Please keep them coming. And be sure to subscribe so that our next episode is ready for you Tuesday morning. Until then, bye-bye.
2: Bye.
0: Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real with you for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better? You really can do it, but nobody is going to do it for you. Nobody is going to push you out of bed to work out. Nobody is going to make you eat better. But here's the thing. Nobody has to, because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great.